I get the opportunity to continue on in our series this morning, the, the series that's entitled A Word to the Wise, as we step into the book of Proverbs and, and look at different writings from the King of Solomon, different things that he has, has shared about how to walk, how to live in a wise way, how to walk in wisdom, hence word to the the wise. And we're stepping into Proverbs. We called it that because Proverbs is known as the book of wisdom written by King Solomon, who is widely renowned for his wisdom. This ultimately, if you can um, imagine for a second, Proverbs uh, functions ultimately as King Solomon's Twitter account. King Solomon's Twitter account where he has some short sayings that, that might be threaded together to cover a theme or a topic. Sometimes they stand alone by themselves um, where he shares his wisdom, specifically try, tries to share with his sons and then ultimately to the general public. So we're going to step into Solomon's Twitter account. And don't worry, he would have nailed it with his Twitter interactions. At least 700 retweets and 300 likes per tweet. If you've got any background in Solomon, which we'll, we'll look at a little bit today. But this morning, we're going to camp out in Proverbs 16. That's where we're going to spend um, our time. And, and well, not the whole time, but that's our main proverb. Proverbs 16, verse 18 is where we're going to be today. Um, so if you want to meet me there, that would be great. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, Bible with you, don't worry. The verses will be up, up on the screen um, you can follow along in that way. So I'm going to read the short tweet or proverb from Solomon. Probably read it twice because I got plenty of time. I think at least. So here we go. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. And I, I just to clarify, I have the CSB in front of me if you know there's any Bible translation people out there. But um, Solomon, in this proverb, wastes really no time in getting to the topic, what he wants to speak about, um, what he wants to deal about, what he wants to warn against. Um, uses it the very first word, it's pride. It's pride, it's an arrogant spirit. He's, he's trying to warn against that. And, and this, this topic, as uh, J.C. Ryle writes in his little booklet called uh, Thoughts for Young Men, he, he calls pride the oldest sin in the world. He writes later on and says, it was before the world Satan and his angels fell by pride. They were not satisfied with their first estate. Then about a paragraph later, he writes, pride cast Adam out of paradise. He was not content with the place God assigned him. He tried to raise himself and fell. All that goes to say, pride has been around for a very, very long time. Arrogance has been something that we've seen and wrestled with for quite a while. And it's very easy for us to see it in other people, to, to point it out. And we throw the term out quite often. Uh, but before we really dive into the proverb, I want to make sure that we get on the same page. Not necessarily just with us, but I want us to make sure we get on the same page as Solomon. Like when Solomon uses the term pride, what is he referring to? When he says arrogant spirit, your version might say haughty spirit. What does he mean? So let's look at the word pride. Well, this, this word pride um, typically speaks to or describes an attitude of someone who's trying to lift up exalt 
themselves and ultimately trust in themselves to do that. They lift up, exalt, trust in the self. That is, that is pride. They, they want to be noticed. They want to elevate themselves above other people. And ultimately, they trust in themselves to do it, meaning they get the credit for that. They work in ways to lift themselves up, but ultimately, they want the notice. They want the credit. They're the ones that did the lifting. Nobody else. They trust in themselves. They're, they're enough. The, the, the attitude that says, I'm enough. I can do it myself. I'm the self-made person. That starts down the stream of pride. And then the second reference that we get is an arrogant spirit. An arrogant spirit in the second half of the proverb. And, and when Solomon uses this, he's uh, describing um, someone who lifts themselves up. The word actually means to be high and lofty, but ultimately high and lofty above everybody else in superiority. And notice it's an arrogant spirit. So again, it's a mindset. It's an attitude that lifts the self above everybody else in superiority, being better, being more valuable than somebody else. That's an arrogant spirit. Viewing yourself, placing yourself on a, on a scale and then just you know, happening to notice that you're on the side that says, I'm more important. I am more valuable than everybody else. That is an arrogant spirit. That's what Solomon is speaking to. That's what he's describing. People that are lifting themselves up, trusting in themselves, and, and ultimately doing that in superiority. I'm, I'm better, I'm more valuable than other people. And, and Solomon here is warning everybody. He's warning and saying, these attitudes, these mindsets lead down the path that end in destruction, that end in ruin, calamity, a fall, a sudden crash, a great drop. And I know you guys are thinking, wow, he just covered the whole proverb. Are we good? Are we done? Can we go? Got lunch plans? No, we're going we're gonna to dive in just a little deeper, just a little deeper. As we check out some, I guess, observations, things that struck me and, and not only observations, but dangers, some dangers that we find with pride. And the first one is that pride is an attitude, right? Both of those terms refer to, to mindsets, to attitudes. And ultimately that means it can affect everyone and it can, it can affect anyone or it can affect anything. Pride can come for anyone or anything because it's not what we do. Pride is in the why question. It's what drives us to do what, what we're doing. It doesn't rely on a certain action, a certain possession you don't need a certain you know, economic status in order to be prideful. You don't, you don't need a certain social status in order to be arrogant. It can come in any of those forms, at any level, at any status. Pride lies in the waiting. Pride lies waiting in the why question. Why am I doing this? And this is where pride can, can stain, can twist, can repackage anything. Our gifts... Our talents can repackage it, repurpose it in a way that, that no longer says it's about other people, but it's about me. Even the things that the Lord has gifted us with and the good things that the Lord has either gifted us with or, or called us to can be repackaged 
stained by pride. If you think um, a little later on, Jesus tells a, a parable in Luke 18 about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Starts off, he, this Pharisee that he's talking about, um, you know, he goes into the temple to pray and prays this. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, adulterers, unjust, definitely not like this tax collector over here. And then he goes on to pray, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He brags about tithing and fasting, two things that, that the Lord wants us to do. He encourages us, actually implies that you know this should be the way that we walk, yet the Pharisee uses those good things to feed his pride, to feed his ego. See, see pride can come for anything. It could be you know, the, a talent that you have. It could be um, a, a way that you even serve the Lord, serve his people, serve the world. Pride can sneak in and repackage it in a way that says, I need the credit. It no longer becomes about the people you're serving and, and the way that you do that, the way that you're serving. You could be you know, taking part in a service project, running a service project. Then a couple years later, all of a sudden, it becomes more about me getting the notice instead of the way in which that I'm serving and the people in which that I'm serving. See, pride can stain anything, can get anyone. And I think the best way or, or, or a great way to see that is if we take a look at the man who wrote this proverb himself. The man who actually wrote down pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall, Solomon. We're gonna get to take a look at, at him. So if you would... Go ahead and flip back in your Bibles. I don't know if you want to you know, keep one finger in the Proverbs and then flip all the way to 1 Kings 10 and keep your thumb there. Um, that's on, I mean, however you want to do it, it's fine. But flip with me to 1 Kings 10. 1 Kings 10. And as you're getting there, I'll, I'll give you a little background in Solomon. So Solomon, being the son of David, David passes away. Solomon becomes King Solomon. All right, the, the kingdom of Israel falls to him. He gets to be the king. Um, and as he does this, he desires to follow in the footsteps of his, of his father, um, goes to Gibeon, pays homage to the Lord, has some sacrifices, and there the Lord visits him in a dream. The Lord visits him a dream, in a dream and says, um, what do you want? Like what, what, do you, what do you need? Ask, I'll give it to you. And, and Solomon, instead of asking for riches, for honor, the death of his enemies says, you know what, Lord, I'm young, I'm inexperienced. I need a deceptive heart, a receptive heart, excuse me, deceptive heart would not be good, Recept, a, a receptive heart and a discerning mind. Lord, give me that. He asks for wisdom. And so the Lord being pleased with his request, gives him that wisdom, makes him the wisest man to ever live at that point in time. And then for a very, very long time after, we don't see anybody as wise as Solomon. But the Lord not only gives him this wisdom, he also, because he was pleased with that request, gives him riches, reputation, and honor, just incredible amounts of honor and wealth. And then Solomon builds the temple and begins amassing just this you know, incredible amount of wealth for Israel. And then it takes us to 1 Kings 10. 1 Kings 10. 
I'm going to start in verse 14. The weight of gold that came to Solomon annually was 25 tons. Besides what came from merchants, traders, merchandise, and all the Arabian kings and governors of the land, King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 15 pounds of gold went into each shield. He made 300 small shields of hammered gold. Nearly four pounds of gold went into each shield. The king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. So Solomon just raking in the gold, right? 25 tons of gold annually. This is almost like what he gets in his taxes because it doesn't include what he gets from the market, right? What he's buying, selling, trading. That's not what's included. But so he is raking in the gold, has so much excess gold that he just decides, hey, um, let's build some shields out of this gold. Builds 500 shields of gold, some large, some small. It's got 500 shields. And what do these shields do? They hang out in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Ultimately, these are used for decorations. They hang up on the walls. Maybe they get them down for parties, parades. They're not actually used for battle. I mean, gold being a soft metal, practically speaking, is not really going to be used well in battle. But, but boy, they look really, really, really cool. Gold shields? He's got enough excess gold Hey, let's just make some shields. Let's do it. That's a lot. And, and, and I'm not harping on Solomon because of his excess wealth. And the Lord promised, hey, I'm going to bless you with riches. I'm going to give you wealth. Like that, that's okay. I'm not harping on that. But remember, pride is the attitude that goes behind something. Pride is the why he does something. Ultimately, this is used to show off what he's got, what Solomon himself has. And then he's got some more gold. So now let's continue reading and see what he does with some of the other gold. He, verse 18, the king made a large ivory throne, overlaid it with fine gold. The throne had six steps. There was a rounded top at the back of the throne, armrests on either side of the seat, two lions standing beside the armrests. Twelve lions were standing there on the six steps, one at each and nothing like it had ever been made in any other kingdom. So he's got enough gold to make some shields, and now he um, puts some ivory into his throne and then overlays it with, with gold and makes the most magnificent throne that has ever been seen. Nothing like it in any other kingdom. Nothing like it. Places all of this wealth into his throne where Solomon is going to be seated. And the question is, Again, why? Why is, why is Solomon doing that? Why, why does he need to put so much effort and wealth into his throne? Let's skip down to verse 23 with me, if you would. King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the world in riches and in wisdom. The whole world wanted an audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. Every man would bring his annual tribute, items of silver and gold, clothing, weapons, Spices and horses and mules. So Solomon needs this awesome throne because the whole world wants to come see him. They want to come listen to him. And when they show up, they need a way, Solomon needs a way for them to understand who he is. 
He, he doesn't want them to come in and, and mistake him for some other Israelite. They got to know, oh, it's the guy on the most magnificent throne I've ever seen. He's, he places himself above everybody else. I'm the most important. I'm the one that needs to be seen and recognized because I've got all the wisdom. I'm the one with the mind. So not only do I have the wealth here, I've got the wisdom. He wants and needs people to see him when they walk into that room There's no doubt, oh, that guy is Solomon. He's the real wise guy. He's the one with all the money and the wealth and the intellectual power. But it doesn't just stop there. I think we clearly get to see what Solomon is aiming at in verses 26 through 29. So I'm going to read those. Solomon accumulated 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, which means he's got enough horses for those people and stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and he made cedar as abundant as sycamore in the Judean foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and Q. The king's traders bought them from Q at the going price. A chariot was imported from Egypt for 15 pounds of silver and a horse for nearly four pounds. In the same way, they exported them to the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram through their agents. So not only has Solomon tried to show off his economic wealth and status and his intellectual mind and wisdom, but now he's showing off and accumulating this great, great military power, right? Chariots and horses, that's, those were weapons used at this time. He, he starts to amass this wonderfully huge military. And it's, it's odd because Deuteronomy 17, the Lord actually warns kings, hey, don't accumulate too many horses. Don't get together too many Chariots, And we see kind of why if we were to, to flip to Psalm 20, verse 7, some put their hope in chariots, others in horses, but we put our hope in the name of the Lord. Solomon here is, is no longer really hoping in the Lord, but he's got his own chariots, his own horses, his own wisdom, his own wealth, himself. Solomon proclaims that he is the most valuable asset. He is the most important and he puts his strength or his trust in his strength, his hope and confidence in himself and what he has. And if this guy, Solomon, the wisest man in the world, if he is susceptible to pride, if he can be snatched up by pride and arrogance, how much more susceptible am I? Solomon in all his wisdom actually wrote down pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall wrote it down and shared it with everybody else. How much more susceptible am I who lacks all sorts of wisdom, all sorts of knowledge. I can't even touch where Solomon was. How much more susceptible am I? Pride can come for anyone. It can affect anyone. And notice what it affected in Solomon the Lord promised to give, make him the wisest man. And he did that. Pride came for it. 
He promised riches and wealth. Pride came for it. Promised power and honor. Pride came for it. Even the gifts of the Lord were, were repackaged and stained by Solomon. If his talents, if his abilities could be snatched up that easily, how much more could mine? Pride can affect anyone, can affect anything. But back to the proverb. So pride comes before destruction in an arrogant spirit, before a fall. We see in this proverb that there seems to be like a time gap between pride and destruction. It comes before, it precedes the destruction. It comes before the fall. There's this, this time gap. And we don't really have you know, some algebraic equation that we can plug in to figure out, right? It's not like, okay, you've been prideful for X amount of days, which means destruction comes in Y amount of weeks or something like that. Like there's not some you know, formula we can plug in. There's not an exact science to it, but there seems to be some time. And during this time, some things I think consistently happen with pride. The first is that there seems to be some success. Pride actually seems to gain you some success. You might start to take steps towards what you want, towards maybe the attention, the notice, the achievement that you're, you're searching for. Pride might actually start to gain some ground on that. Because let's be real. In order for something to be considered a fall, there's gotta be some hype, Right? Like there's got to be some distance from the ground in order for something to be considered a crash or a fall. So you might actually see some of that success, that notice, that attention. But while you might start to see that success, it always remains short term. Those short-term gains ultimately end in long-term loss. You, you get your attention, your notice, congratulations, your reward stays here. It doesn't go any farther does not go any farther. But that's not the only thing that happens in this time gap between pride and destruction. I think another thing that we see is that, that pride, when left unchecked, snowballs into a multitude of sins. Snowballs into a multitude of sins that you cannot control. See, this, this pride, this need to be noticed, this need to be more valuable, more important than other people leads to other things. Like maybe greed. You're, you're taking pride in your own economic status and then all of a sudden now you're becoming greedy trying to gain more for yourself and then that might lead to theft and then extortion and it continues to snowball. Maybe you're trying to elevate yourself and keep yourself above other people so you, you notice those other people catching up so now we gossip which then snowballs to slander and then it keeps going. Maybe... Maybe even you, you start to see other people with talents, abilities that make them seem more resourceful, more useful, more noticed. You start to envy, start to become jealous. And then that leads to resentment, not only of those people, but the giver of those gifts. You start to resent that. And then it leads to anger and hatred. See, pride snowballs all in order to raise yourself up and keep yourself at a higher level of importance than all the people out there. And again, our example, Solomon is perfect. I mean, I mean Solomon is, is perfectly showing us, do as I say, not as I do here. 
So if you want to flip back to 1 Kings um, 10, actually we're going to be in 11 now, but remember um, Solomon has, has poured everything into his, his pride, has poured everything into his wealth, his wisdom, his weapons, um, trying to be secure. He's seeking material security, independent from the Lord. I'm enough to provide this for myself. And then we get to 1 Kings 11. So I'm going to read, starting in verse 1. King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter. That's his wife. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them and they must not intermarry with you because they will turn your heart away to follow their gods. To these women, Solomon was deeply attached in love. He had 700 wives who were princes and princesses and 300 who were concubines. That's where his likes and retweets came from. If you didn't get that joke earlier. Um, and they turned his heart away. So Solomon, in his pride and his arrogance, thinking, you know what, I've got it, I'm good enough, um, his pride starts to snowball. And I can almost imagine him saying or, or, or picture him thinking, um, you know what, God, that's a great idea for all those other Israelites, like, like not intermarrying with them. That's a great idea for them. They definitely need that structure. But me, I, I've got the wisdom. They're, they're not as smart as me. They're, they're not as wealthy as me. And they don't have the power, the military strength to deal with those repercussions that might come from it. Like, okay, maybe for them but I'm going to do my own thing because I can handle it. And his pride snowballs into adultery, which then leads to polygamy. And then in verse four, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. He was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord, his God, as his father David had been. Solomon followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. And unlike his father David, he did not remain loyal to the Lord. At that time, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abhorrent idol of Moab. And Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites on the hill across from Jerusalem. He did the same for all his foreign wives who were burning incense and offering sacrifices to their gods. See, Solomon's desire, his pride that led him to, to want to be um, secure and independent snowballs and leads him to full-on idolatry. Like full-on idolatry. Now he's building high places for, for Chemosh and Milcom, these abhorrent idols of other nations. And if he's not taking part in these, um, if you want to argue and say that he's not taking part in these ritualistic sacrifices and, and, and services, um, he's at least implying and telling the other Israelites, hey, this is cool, go do it. You can take part in them. Full-on idolatry leaving the Lord. His pride, his dissatisfaction snowballs into something that he cannot handle. Even in all his wisdom and power, he cannot handle this. See, pride goes before the destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. And then the last, the last danger, the last observation, the last danger that we see with pride is that pride ultimately misses 
what it aims for. Pride misses what it aims for. It is zero for a thousand. See, pride ends in destruction. It ends in a fall. An arrogant spirit ends in ruin and a crash. When it aims to exalt and lift up the self, it ends in calamity and rock bottom. It ends to elevate the self and make the self more important and more valuable falls woefully short. And again, there's not an exact science to it. There's not like a map to, to figure out when this destruction would come. And honestly, it might not even be in this lifetime. We might not see that happen in this lifetime, but we know that pride leads to ultimately long-term loss. We might enjoy that short-term pleasure, success, but it will end in a long-term loss. It misses what it aims for. And we see this in Solomon. We see this perfectly in Solomon. Again, do as I say, not as I do, could be even his themed hashtag on his Twitter account. Back to 1 Kings 11. I'm going to start by reading in verse 9. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had commanded him about this so that he would not follow other gods. But Solomon did not do what the Lord had commanded. Then the Lord said to Solomon, since you have done this and did not keep my covenant and my statutes, which I commanded you, I will tear the kingdom away from you and I will and give it to your servant. However, I will not do it during your lifetime for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of your son's hand. Yet I will not tear the entire kingdom away from him. I will give him one tribe, or I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem that I chose. See, Solomon's pride, his desire to to then give himself material security, independent and apart from the Lord, leads to destruction. The Lord goes to him probably through a prophet and says, I will surely tear the kingdom away and give it to your servant. And ultimately, like this security that Solomon desperately seeks vanishes. We see three different adversaries raised up. You've got Hadad, you've got Jeroboam, and then you've got Reason. I think that's how you pronounce his name. It's spelled R-E-Z-O-N. Me as an elementary teacher should, should get that, you know, with the phonics. Um, but, you know, I left it up to a question mark. But we've got three different adversaries. The, the peace and security that Solomon wants, gone. Now he spends the rest of his life seeking and trying to get rid of adversaries, seeking Jeroboam, who hides out in Egypt. And Solomon knows that he's out there, spends the rest of his tri- life seeking Jeroboam, this, this security that his pride so desperately wanted, missed, whiffed, took a huge swing, and absolutely missed it. But not only is Solomon's peace and security disrupted, his pride, his arrogant spirit leads to the very destruction of the kingdom that he reigned over. The very kingdom that he was king over the kingdom of Israel leads into a split. Now we've got Jeroboam 
who reigns over Israel. And then Judah is Rehoboam's. The very kingdom that he served and wanted to be wise and judge and do, do a wonderful job for ends in destruction. And yes, Rehoboam, sure, he, he took some steps to, to help that. But we see in the scriptures that it all stems from Solomon. It all stems from Solomon and it starts from his pride and his arrogant spirit. See, his, his pride led to destruction as it always does. And his arrogant spirit led to a fall as it always does. So again, do as I say, not as I do. And, and Solomon here is warning against pride, would say, hey, pride is not the wise way to walk. Don't pursue pride. So what is, what is the, the wise way to walk? And I think, I think it starts um, in, in areas that we see in, in the scripture, like Proverbs 3, James 4, 1 Peter 5, where, where it says God opposes pride. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So the answer is to seek humility. That's the wise way. Seek and walk in humility. But what does humility look like? Well, humility is poor in spirit, meek. But I think the best definition comes straight out of Philippians 2, where Paul says, do nothing out of rivalry or selfish ambition, but in humility, consider others more valuable than yourself. I think that there is humility, considering others more valuable than yourself. And I think um, a lot of times we buy into this idea that humility is kind of this woe is me attitude. This, this woe is me like, ah, I'm going to shy away from the gifts. I'm going to, you know, try and push away these gifts and talents that I've been given because I don't want to look prideful. Humility is not claiming to be bad or purposely being bad or actually being, you know, bad at something. It's not a lack of talent because then that means having talent is prideful and that's not the case. Like, like track with me here. If Steph Curry, the recent finals MVP, I'm a basketball guy, so I'll, I'll, I'll reference some basketball. If he comes up on the stage and says, hey guys, just want you to know I am not very good at basketball. Like, I'm just not very good. I'm not really that good of a shooter. Like, I don't really know what I'm doing out there. That does not make him more humble. What it actually does is it makes him a liar. Because we all watched you. Maybe not all of us, but some of us. It depends on the ratings. Um, Some of us watched you. You're really good. Like, you're the finals MVP for a reason. LeBron, if he comes up, hey, guys, I'm not very good. No, well, no, you're really, really good. You know what you're doing. You could play like if Solomon were to say, hey, guys, I'm not that wise. Everybody would look at each other like you are quite literally the wisest man in the world. What are you talking about? You are very wise. Humility is not claiming to not have talent or or to, to shy away from that. And I think that's important for us because we have a lot of talented people in our community, in our congregation, a ton of talented People, The Lord has blessed us with people that have gifts, talents, abilities that when they work together are, are, are just fantastic. Like I, I think of, you know, how many business people we have that, that are fantastic at it. They just have a natural bend for making business decisions. 
They don't need to shy away from that. They, they, don't, they don't need to sprinkle in some poor decisions just to make it seem like they're humble. No, like, like do that. But as you walk, and, and, and if you walk that way, don't make that a reason to value yourself. You're not more important because of that. I can think of an example from my own missional community. Donnie, Donnie Graham, you might know him. Um, he's extremely talented when it comes to building and constructing, constructing things. He's got his own Instagram, YouTube, Donnie Graham Build. It's awesome. I love it. I tune in to, to see what he can do because it's incredible. Like, like Donnie doesn't need to shy away from that talent. He needs to use that talent. But as he uses it, do it in a way that's considering others more valuable than himself. And he does a wonderful job of that. Offering to build things for people, helping people with different projects. I know one time he even built this awesome table and just like went on a mission to find somebody to gift it to. He's considering others more valuable than himself as he practices that talent. The worship, the worship team, so much talent on the worship team. But if they're, if they're using that in a way that says, hey, I'm more important, I'm better than you, then, then they're walking in pride. But, but we want them to use that talent, don't we? I mean, trust me, you don't want me to up here singing and leading. Like, we want the talented people because then it just glorifies God. It benefits everybody else. That is humility. It's the mindset. It's how we use our talents. When we use our talents, do we make ourselves more important, more valuable than everybody else, or are we doing it for the benefit of others and to the glory of God? That is humility. And I think the best way or the answer and the way that we walk in humility is ultimately to first and foremost see the cross. See the cross where um, Solomon basically is do as I say, not as I do. Jesus comes and shatters that with the perfect of example of humility. Like Jesus is greater than Solomon and praise God for that. Jesus being the second person of the Trinity, the lamb of God, the son of the living God, the eternal king, and knowing that full well, knowing who he was as he came down, right? Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus said that. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He knew exactly who he was Yet he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be exploited. But he came in the form of a servant, lived in a carpenter's house instead of a giant palace. When him and his disciples sat down for dinner for the final time, and they all looked around at each other like, are you going to wash the feet? Because I'm not. Jesus humbly considering them more valuable, more important grabs the basin and washes their feet. And he humbles himself perfectly by becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross, a criminal's death. See, Jesus came and lived in perfect humility as he walked this earth and then endured the cross as he considered others more valuable than himself and praise God that he lived in perfect humility. Praise the Lord for that because he lived in a more perfect, better way than any of us could. And when he goes to the cross in his humility, it frees us to face our pride head on. 
It frees us to face our pride head on. We don't have to allow our pride to snowball. We don't have to hide it, cover it, and let other sin step over the top. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we are free to humbly confess and repent our pride. We can look at him and and what he did and what he accomplished on the cross and say, you know what, it's him. I, yes, Lord, I've been prideful. I've been arrogant. I repent of that. And a couple things happen when we look to Jesus on the cross. A couple things happen. The first is that this pride that says, I'm enough. I trust in myself. I can do it is extinguished because we no longer say it's me. We now say it's him. It's not in me. It's not what I've done, but it's in what Jesus has done, what Jesus has accomplished Our trust, our confidence is no longer in ourself, but in the finished work of Christ. And then the second thing that I think happens is that as we look, as we repent, all the destruction, all the ruin, all the calamity that my pride rightfully earned and deserved falls to him. He covers it on the cross. It all falls on Jesus So as we seek to walk in humility, I I, I urge us to to shy away from pride and seek humility as we repent and look to Jesus on the cross and consider others more valuable, more important than ourselves. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son who lived in perfect humility yet took the destruction the fall, the calamity that my pride, our pride has earned. So let us, Lord, look to him, trust in him, um, and just walk in deeper relationship with you. It's in your son's precious name I pray, amen.